We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand address letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Well, 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 you thought we were done talking about Jane Eyre. Wrong. You look so stupid right now. (laughs) (laughs) How are any of us ever done with Jane Eyre? How are we done with water when water is wet? How are we (laughs) we done with the blue sky? How are we done with... Indeed. How are we done with water when water is wet? We're just not. No. Wet things are forever. (laughs) Especially here at Womance. (laughs) Wet things are forever. You might have forgotten, dear listener, that when we embarked on reading Jane Eyre, it was because Isabeau and I had this longer conversation with the hypothesis made that the most prevalent hero archetype in romance novels is the Rochester rather than the Darcy. Although I think because of some particularly charming television adaptations and film adaptations, the Darcy does seem to take up more space. Darcy's wet white shirt looms large. Darcy's clenched fist looms larger for some of us. It's fair, super fair. And doesn't loom as large as the grasped arm and held door of Uh, Rochester's strained wrist. Oh, my God. Which tragedy. Um, But there's a difference between something taking up space in the zeitgeist and something actually taking up space Mm. on the page. And so Morgan and I had this Darcy versus Rochester. And very early on during our... January, where we were looking at Jane Austen adaptations, Morgan had this beautiful thought where she's like, Darcy's just a projector screen and Rochester's a full-blown character. And I was Mm. horrified, listeners, if you remember, (laughs) that Darcy was just a projector screen of desires and not anything else. Like, I felt really personally attacked by that. And so we decided to start with Jane Eyre to investigate the Rochester and 
here's our thrilling thoughts and conclusions about Mr. Ratch. I think it's important to know that the main reason we decided to read Jane Eyre first is because I found a copy in a little free library. (laughs) So shout out to all my little free library warriors out there. Starting with the Rochester, though, I don't think would have been my instinct. We should have started with Darcy. Or I don't think I don't think it's a question of should have. But I think if I had been asked before we started reading Pride and Prejudice or Jane Eyre, I think I might have chosen Pride and Prejudice first. Mm hmm. But I think that's also kind of speaks to this larger thing that I'm now kind of is now kind of resonant for me, which is the idea of the rom-com versus basically everything else in romance. And you and I, we started this project at the beginning of the pandemic Mm -hmm. in a time when I personally felt very much uh, interested in wallowing in bad feeling, but also trying to evade it. And I think it's interesting to kind of think back on where I was in 2020 compared to now or 2021 compared to now with the prevalence of the romantic comedy in romance publishing today. I think that's true. And for like how sad Pride and Prejudice is, it is at its heart a comedy. And for how comedic at parts Jane Eyre is, it is a gothic novel. Like it starts with her cousin beating her senseless and then her being locked in the red room yeah and I think especially since this was like our (laughs) pandemic project that I imagine both you and I assumed we would have finished well before now (laughs) (laughs) there's so much here about heaviness and being locked in and even locking in yourself that really spoke to me in those in and especially the early days of the pandemic, but also all the way through about just like this unknowing and like trying to find inner resources and this like deep concern that you also can't really affect. Yeah. And it was it was a perfect book, as you say, to wallow in bad feeling, but also evade it because like Jane feels bad all the time. Yeah. And you can wallow with her and it doesn't it like it that feeling doesn't belong to you even if it feels deeply familiar or feels concurrent. It like it's nice to be in it when it isn't yours. I feel like in general we found and there are enough think pieces about this that makes me deeply suspicious of it being at all factual. Like show me the data at this point. But there are a lot of think pieces about how florid trash television kind of took off during the pandemic. And the thing is, right, like Tiger King, Love is Blind – these kind of phenomenons are about bad feeling, right? And <laughs> like watching something bad, watching bad things happen to other people. Like I would say Love is Blind is more aligned with Jane Eyre. Certainly Tiger King is more aligned with Jane Eyre um, than it is Pride and Prejudice. But at the same time, right, Bridgerton became a sensation. Um, and everyone was reminded, and Bridgerton is nothing if not like an inheritor, or is it, 
of Pride and Prejudice. On a surface level, it is. On a surface level, it is. Again, Bridgerton was such a juggernaut that it saved the PBS masterpiece show Sanditon, which is based on an unfinished Jane Austen novel. You say again, but I don't know. I've never heard this before. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) Bridgerton's popularity saved an entire other television show called Sanditon that had been released pre-Bridgerton and didn't gain enough uh, popularity, even though it had that super hot guy with the crazy pillowy lips, Theo James, and like they, it did not get renewed. <laughs> and then Bridgerton breaks every single record, every single mold, every everything ever, whatever, whatever. And then PBS Masterpiece is like, wait, Bridgerton's really great, and we had this other thing that's period accurate had the money, and also had characters of color. PBS, Masterpiece, BBC One, you want to you wanna come talk to us again? And they were like, yeah, we do. we do. We do definitely want to cash in on that Bridgerton money. Thank you. We absolutely will. And now Sanditon is in its second season, which is airing right now in the U.S. and aired in the U.K. Uh, a few months ago. A couple things I would poke, first of all. PBS and BBC One have been making regency romance adaptations absolutely long before bridgerton and i'm sure they have quite a few (laughs) in the chamber for well after bridgerton second of all i'm not sure like how much of like what the actual number of new viewers needs to be for pbs to be like oh my god we've got to do another season probably like 30 people I mean, it was a surprise that they canceled it, right? Because it was a, it felt like a fairly popular show. And for those listeners who do like PBS masterpiece romances, um, Poldark had done very well and had had five seasons. And so Sanditon was kind of going to slot into that space. Yeah. And then was canceled abruptly after one so season. So I would say PBS is different from Netflix. Sure. I would say... For me, going into this project, I believe Rochester is the archetype. We see way more art Rochesters on the page than we ever see Darcy's. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, an attitude that I have maintained through this reading is that Jane Eyre is the PBS, Pride and Prejudice is the Netflix contender. Mm-hmm. Why is Netflix taking up more space in the zeitgeist, right? Because you're like, zeitgeist versus page. Why is Netflix taking up more space in the zeitgeist Mm -hmm. than PBS? You might say distribution, and you might be right, but that's not helping me through my question. So we're going to put that to the side. Although I don't think it's unrelated because like there are not as... Rochester is the archetype, but you can actually almost cut him out and lift him, and you don't have to have the Jane Eyre corollary. Right? Like, there is, I agree, Rochester is the stronger archetype in romance, but he he's not yoked to Jane Whoa. in the same way Whoa. that Darcy and Elizabeth's relationship is the central thing. And so, like, Pride and Prejudice has a thousand more adaptations, like, one-for-one adaptations, and Rochester appears by himself as the romantic hero archetype 
in romance more often than Darcy. Okay, so you're, I want to make sure I understand. Mm -hmm. This is a theory. I only just thought of it. Let us put us to the test. Okay, so I want to make sure I understand the theory. You are saying that the character arc and story arc of Pride and Prejudice is structured so that Darcy and Elizabeth have to be together. Whereas like the story arc mm-hmm. and character development of Jane Eyre is such that Rochester and Jane don't have to be together. You could get rid of Rochester and the book would be the same. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the relationship of Darcy and Elizabeth is replicable, where there is something unique about Rochester and Jane, but that you could lift Rochester out and put him with other kinds of female heroines. Okay. But you can't do the same thing about Darcy. Like, Darcy is constitutive of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is constitutive of Darcy. Okay. But Jane and Rochester are fully fledged in and of themselves, which is why Rochester can be lifted out and put in with other people. But his narrative, his and Jane's narrative, is not replicable or adaptable in the same one-for-one way that we see with Pride and Prejudice. And I think you hit it on the head at the beginning of this with it's like one's a one's is essentially a rom-com and one is essentially not. Yeah, it's because Rochester does truly demented things. He like puts his wife in an attic. Like what, you want to like replicate what if we took the guy whose wife is in the attic but we made it in the 21st century like that doesn't like work like what if she's like a parisian like it doesn't make sense like i see rochester is so bound up in his big yucks that you really have to (laughs) you really have to put a lot of smoke and mirrors to say nothing of the fact that he um dresses as a woman and don's blackface as part of his seduction. Like, there's a lot of big, yuck set pieces in Jane Eyre. He threatens to rape her. Further, like, your romantic rival is Sinjin, to say nothing of Sinjin, who looms very large in the text and just gets written out of a lot of adaptations because what do you do with a problem like Sinjin Rivers <laughs> making her come by touching her head? And then, like, (laughs) opening her up. Jane Eyre has so much to do, even talking through it now, though, I feel reaffirmed in the idea that we see the Rochester more often than we see the Darcy. We not only see the Rochester, we see the Jane Eyre because that is such a story of id and, like, Jane wanting to be unbound from her body and like literalizing the worst things about men like that is to me where romance lives like as a genre like it's it's not afraid to look in the secret corners of our minds and say like this is that but it allows us like like to to wildly speculate on charlotte bronte's state of mind saying that a man has a wife in his attic who he doesn't talk about. That's not so different from, like, men who will say they're in a marriage of convenience or men on Tinder now, right, who say, like, I'm in an open relationship, but how are you ever going to confirm that, you know? Mm. Um, Or even just saying they're single. How can you ever confirm that, you know, and that you have 
you're embarking on something that's real. Like, it's sick that that's a universal truth, but I think Bertha is a literalization, like, um, it's made visceral what men do all the time, which is lie about their relationship status or obfuscate it or undermine it. Not only that, but once they're caught in the lie, they will apologize for everything but the lie and hold you captive to their rationalizations <laughs> unendingly. Like yeah. the way in which Jane Eyre is subjected to the monologuing of men. Like Darcy only really monologues once when he's like, I love you against my will. And this brings up a question we had when we were reading Jane Eyre, which is like, is Charlotte Bronte writing to women or is she writing to men? Is she trying to show men other their own assholes? Or is she trying to show those assholes to women? Or is she not even cognizant that this is an asshole? She is. She's cognizant that both of them are monstrous, right? Because that's why she gets the digs right. in at St. John. But she also gets the digs in at Rochester. Like, if she didn't believe he was truly monstrous, she wouldn't have punished him with blindness and losing a hand. Yeah. Like, he had to be punished for his sins. He had to be physically and emotionally humbled, which is also 100% what happens in romance. Yeah. It doesn't happen as dramatically as that oftentimes. Although some, or viscerally. Or viscerally, although sometimes it can. Like, Laura Kinsale loves to physically humble and emotionally humble her heroes in all sorts of ways, <laughs> from poisonings to strokes. But she does it in the very beginning. She always does it in the very beginning. And Laura Kinsale, right, it's like uh, it's like Rochester in the meadow. It's not the arrogant asshole who kept the wife in the attic. It's the humbled, I'm trying to find my way forward at Fern Dean. The Fern Dean Rochester versus, uh, now we've got two for the price of one archetypes. We have the Thorndale Rochester and the Fern Dean Rochester. But I, I actually feel like revisiting Jane Eyre, reading it aloud gave to someone else and listening to it from someone else in the moment and getting to like, bleh, everything that came to my mind and have it met by another person was incredibly freshly generative. But I also feel like I feel ready to double down on what I said before, which is that Rochester is the main archetypal romantic hero, but also Jane Eyre is the main archetypal romance novel. How, how globby it is and how messy it is and how sad it is and like there's also kind of a while it looks directly at the wife in the attic it chooses not to look directly at the uh at um for example Sinjin staring at a miniature in a house for 15 minutes right she's like oh Sinjin it's like I what like no we all know what that was but I'm not sure that the book knows what it was uh, I think the book knows what it was, especially since she walked down the primrose path with Helen Burns. You know, I'm more compelled to think that Jane Eyre, the text, is conscientious of the lesbian stuff than it is the sadomasochistic relationship with a man stuff. Like, it doesn't seem to realize that she's like, what's going on in her 
Hindustani lessons. I don't know, but it's so real with Rochester that it would it it would shock me that it like and not to psychoanalyze the person who's been dead for over 200 years. But it's so easy. She's begging for it. She wrote Jane Eyre. I know. She wrote Jane Eyre, but like that thing that Rochester says the night before the night that Jane leaves about like I could rip you open like limb from limb and I still wouldn't get the thing that I want out of you which is like your essential soul like your caged bird but like he has her in his hand like he is physically threatening her with rape to get at her and he's like I know that that isn't the thing that would actually grant me access and even if I killed you and ripped open your rib cage I would just be freeing you to the Lord, right? Like, I'd be letting you go. I wouldn't get the thing that I want. I don't think a person who could write that speech could have the thing where I felt the ecstatic joy of St. Cecilia when he touched my head while learning Hindustani. Like, I... <laughs> well, she she doesn't feel that when she's in the lessons with him, but she's fearful like she continues she like agrees to go to them and she continues to go to them and there's no reason for her to she just talks about how awful it is i mean i don't think the book's aware of sinjin's perspective like sinjin's desire to punish her like rochester i think the book is very clear on like rochester's inner turmoil but i don't think the book is very clear on the fact that sinjin is getting very hard teaching her hindustani and like and like controlling every part of her like that whole section is like the ending of secretary but without the thought that like maybe they could be happy like this and that's proven out because jane says i could never be happy like this and chooses not to be with him right and does choose to be with right and she says that and also like remember we thought the book was being like really self-aware about bertha it's not Mm -hmm. So I'm, like, less inclined to think that this book is self-aware of, like, groovy shit like BDSM. If it's not self-aware of groovy shit like female solidarity. (laughs) Well, it's definitely not aware of that. Like, she only has solidarity with women of her class (laughs) and only women that she likes and thinks Well, Bertha is of her class. But Bertha's not pretty in Jane's estimation. Deal with it. But she's not of her race, which... But to go back to this Sinjin thing and, like, this BDSM and, like, why I want to just push a little bit harder. Because, like, as soon as she comes out of the subservient where he's like, you can't go as my sister, you can't go as my cousin. Mm. And she holds the line, right? Suddenly her fear is gone. And suddenly, like, the pleasure, pain cortex that she was receiving is gone and he begins to really fly off the handle because she's not being controlled in the way that he wanted he withholds affection from her they stop doing the lessons and he's like I'm going to be back in two weeks and you better have changed your mind and she's like I don't think I will and in that last scene where he's like trying to overpower her again and she's like this isn't going to happen the way you want it to happen that's when nature calls forth Rochester's voice for her And so I think, like, even if this book wouldn't have ever used the term masochist or sadist, it is describing a bad version of that. Let's say, like, a Fifty Shades of Grey non-consenting version of that. 
in this way. And then as soon as Jane finds the will to break out of this bad feeling with Sinjin, he flies off the handle and she flies to Rochester. I would say he doesn't fly off the handle. In fact, he almost wins her over, right? Almost, but not quite. Because he reads, he has that scene where he's reading from the book of Revelations and he's calling on all of his charm and vigor, right? But also just because things happen doesn't mean the book, the text is aware of what the of what that implies like that's what i'm saying i don't i think jane Eyre. i think jane Eyre as a text can say like these things happened but i don't think jane Eyre is saying these things happened because of horniness and i don't think that there i don't see like compelling evidence that the book is aware of that i feel like the book is deeply aware of sinjin's horniness both for rosamond and jane But, like, that Jane is misinterpreting it herself and that, like, that's why we have the foil of Rochester and Sinjin and that's why we spend so long with Sinjin. These are two kinds of overpowering men. But the book gives Sinjin, like, a heavenly ending, right, compared to Bertha. Sure. So does the book think Sinjin is some kind of bad Rochester? I don't think so. I think the book thinks Sinjin is a good person And that's what I mean by, like, the lack of self-awareness of the text. I think the book thinks that Sinjin is a good person but would have been a bad husband, which is why he dies alone and unmarried. Yeah, but in fact, Sinjin is just a bad person. Full stop. Totally, totally. And the book is not aware that Sinjin is a bad person. And that's what I mean by, like, this kind of lack of self-awareness or, like, unwillingness to be that confrontational like just confrontational enough to be like he didn't write me back for six months and he died alone but guess what also he went to heaven you know (laughs) like that which I think is like very much like feminine passive aggression exists in romance through that sort of thing sure I think it is I think you're right to say that it is a distinction that like Sinjin is a bad person full stop the book doesn't see it that way but does see him as not husband material like there is something inside of Sinjin that is dangerous for a wife specifically yeah and the reason why I think that's an interesting distinction to draw is like when we were first reading those first chapters one of the criticisms that you had for Brocklehurst is that he was such a new unnuanced villain that there was nothing about him that was redeeming or interesting he was just a sketch of a terrible person abusing girls and stealing money and being an asshole. And like, that's not very interesting. All of the things that we've just talked about make Sinjin a very interesting villain. Yeah, but I didn't say Sinjin wasn't an interesting villain. Right, but to say that this book thinks that like Sinjin is a good person, I think is a bridge too far. I think this book understands a kind of villainy inside of Sinjin. It acknowledges that his ambition is a a drawback of his character but he the book gives him the last word and his last word is can't wait to get to heaven christ almighty i'm uh, amen yeah so i given the fact that this book was published in the victorian era you don't give heaven to bad people and you don't give the last word to a villain But that would be in keeping with the nature vibe of, and that's another way that this epilogue doesn't feel like in like perfect seam with the rest of the text, because this, this 
book has a very specific view of Christianity and like there's a right kind of Christianity and Sinjin's is not the right kind. So like the idea that he's going to heaven, okay, but he's still not following the right kind of Christianity according to Jane. His is too unbending. It's too rigid. It's too militaristic. It doesn't have the empathy of Christ the Redeemer of like Helen Burns's Christianity. So are you saying that Jane Eyre is self-aware as a text and that there aren't blind spots? No, I'm not saying that there aren't blind spots, but I'm saying that like this thing about Sinjin's, I don't think that the blind spot about Sinjin is as big as you are making it out to be. Like I'll give you, maybe it doesn't understand the BDSM fully, but I think it understands it in an 1840s context. I think it also understands Sinjin as a villain who believes and says the right things, but doesn't do the right things. But I feel like that's like that lack of self-awareness is a lack of self-awareness. Like that lack of direct confrontation is a lack of direct confrontation. But she does have direct confrontation with Sinjin. She doesn't bend i'm talking about the text itself giving him the last like it the epilogue is weird it's weird that it doesn't end at chapter 37 but it was obviously very important for someone that jane and rochester get married on the page that they have a baby i mean the whole thing with adele son, in fact being not his firstborn anymore Mm -hmm. like that ambiguity is removed and her french defects are removed and there's a lot in this epilogue and conclusion that feels like it undoes the weird cool work of chapter 37 i i mean i don't think the chapter i don't think chapter 37 does that much weird cool work i think chapter 37 has her settling in and caring for a man who locked his wife in the attic attempted bigamy with a significantly younger woman Like, Rochester's a bad person. Yes, absolutely. The book does make him suffer for his sins physically. But he gets, you know, his version of heaven at the end. And so does Sinjin, who I don't think counts as a foil. Like, he is bad in less Baroque ways and significantly more subtle ways. Mm -hmm. But I also think, like, by virtue of that, by virtue of both of these men having their, like, just reward for fucking what, mm-hmm. you know, is, um, I don't think it's a, I think this book says a lot to readers like us in our current moment in time who have since digested a lot of culture that came from it. Mm-hmm. And because of it, indeed, because of it. But I don't think that this is a text that is that self-aware. I think there's a lot of subconsciousness on the page. Potentially. But now I'm like thinking back, like the only other true villain, her cousin, Sir John, is punished, like fully punished and doesn't get to go to heaven because he dies by suicide. But, like, Mrs. Reed gets to die in her house. One of the cousins becomes a nun. But, again, the wrong kind of Catholic or the wrong kind of Christian. She becomes a Catholic. The book, I think the book believes it's punishing bad people and rewarding good people. And by that logic, Bertha was a bad person. Um, and Sinjin was a good person. Mm-hmm. And that's goofy. That's not self-aware. 
I'm pretty sure there had to be people reading this when it came out that were like, hold on a minute. (laughs) Maybe not out loud, but privately to themselves. And that's what I mean, like the subconsciousness of it. Like there's a lack of self-awareness. Like I feel like there's a lot of work going on subconsciously, like making Sinjin do the things he does. But then consciously on the page being like, and he was a Christian warrior who died and went to heaven. And it worked out the way it was supposed to work out for him. And I don't think it's aware of like that passive aggression, right? I think it's like, and this is a good ending for this person who only wanted to teach his cousin Hindustani because he just needed a missionary's wife. I think it's important that Sinjin is never married, right? Because I think that there's something here that like if Sinjin had been married, there is a different version of the wife in the end. Mm -hmm. And like maybe it wouldn't be an attic at Thornfield, but like Jane has that whole thing where she's like she wouldn't even have the corner of her inside for herself. That Sinjin would colonize her entirely and that she would give and give and give and give and that there would be nothing left for her and that she'd be scooped out and die pretty quickly. And so I think the book is really aware of this like sinister feeding that Sinjin is that the threat that he represents. And I think the fact that he never marries is part of the happy ending mm-hmm. for Except everyone the one else. Person who actually does scoop out the entirety of a woman until she dies on Rochester, the concrete at the bottom of a turret in his home, far away from her own home, which is significantly more beautiful, right? She's taken away from Jamaica. Yes. And put in the north of England. Sorry, north of England stands. Not as good as Jamaica. And she's totally, no, of course not. And that she is totally and utterly colonized. Like every piece of her is owned. She has nothing remaining. Do you think that Charlotte Bronte would be like Bertha is a victim and Bertha is utterly colonized in the same way that Jane describes herself potentially being utterly consumed by Sinjin? No. No. I think you're making a really good, interesting point on her behalf. I think you're doing the work, though. I don't think the book's doing the work. And I think that's what's appealing to me about romance is, like, it's all there. It's just you have to, like kind of get your fingers in the wet soil and the thing about wet things is they never die they're always wet (laughs) and so to go back i'm i'm going to double down (laughs) wet things are always wet they never die i'm going to double down on my theory that rochester is the main romance archetype and say that Jane Eyre is the main textual archetype but not that Jane Eyre the character is the main heroine archetype well there that's because there's only one heroine archetype it's doesn't know she's beautiful likes to read (laughs) and that's Lizzie Bennet and that's Lizzie Bennet as well Lizzie and Jane share no one wants to fuck (laughs) me Uh uh-oh everybody wants to oh only the people who matter do Uh, Lizzie and Jane do share a lot of reading time. They're both interested in reading. Um, and they both say things <laughs> like, I would rather die a spinster than be subsumed into a bad and loveless marriage. 
Yeah. As much as I think Darcy is a projector screen, I mean, like, I don't think this is nothing revolutionary. A lot of romance heroines are likewise a projector screen, except for the brats. I love the brats. I love an unlikable heroine. I love the brats. But the likable ones, you know, I don't want to hold up a mirror too much. Indoor kids. (laughs) Allegedly not beautiful, but that's just because they don't realize it and society doesn't realize it, right? They're all just like a tearing off of the glasses and undoing of the hair away from being irresistible, right? They walk through one rainstorm and they're Cindy Crawford at the end of it, which is probably not true for a lot of people, but I wish it was. I fantasize about it being true. Uh, Not like regular girls. Mm -hmm. Not like regular girls is like a paramount... Yeah. So I can like pull all of these things out about Lizzie and Jane. But they're like pretty, like the contours and nuances I feel would be the things that are important to me about my own self perception, as opposed to like anything that's explicitly on the page. Yeah. I think it is really interesting that like, Rochester can be scooped out and repurposed as the romance archetype. And it does seem like Darcy doesn't exist without his... Right. Because he is so constitutive of that relationship. With the same flexibility. And a sister. (laughs) He's got to have 20,000 pounds a year. That he's like has a golden to take retriever care of, yeah. fuck boy for a best friend, mm-hmm. a mysterious younger sister. Like he's gotta have he's gotta have his big nice house. But Rochester can have a beautiful ferret that is elderly that he loves and takes care of and is a ratter secret royalty. Well, hold on. I don't <laughs> think that guy is Rochester. <laughs> take it easy. That man is not a Rochester. Rochester? No, and I do want to say, like, just because there's an archetype doesn't mean it's got to be not all romance heroes. Sure, not all. But I would say probably, I would say, actually, if we're going to be like, is he more of, so we're talking about the hero from uh, Judith Ivory's The Proposition. The Proposition. He's a cockney ratter who engages in a relationship with a woman because she's a linguist and she's going to turn she's well she's my fair ladying him right he's the eliza doolittle um except it turns out you know whatever secret duke uh also if you haven't read it please do read judith i agree's the proposition it remains incredibly but i guess he would like maybe he's a lizzie but i i guess he would be more of a rochester because rochester versus if you're gonna like put him into a rochester or darcy category right like he's rough around the edges and he's very much the instigator from the out and i think you know maybe i'm misremembering he's a sexual dynamo he's also much bigger than her he like comments on that And he's also humbled by her a couple of times, which I think is also kind of part and parcel of this, where it's like, no one can humble him, but the, but the. But are archetypes their arcs? 
Or is that separate? Ooh, that's actually a good literary question that we should investigate. Well, I feel like they're separate. Mm -hmm. I do feel like they're separate. Like, I know Odysseus is an archetype, but his journey is his own, which is Is its own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's just the journey home. Yeah. Which is different Mm -hmm. than being an Odysseus. Correct. Right? Yes. Yes. So... But I will say, like, he, I, I would say he doesn't really fit neatly into either space. So way to pull out an example that blows up the whole project, Isabeau. Just from the top of your head, that's what you came up with. I Well, I was trying to think of, like, who would I put on a list of Rochesters other than, And that's like, who came to mind. Yeah. He was one of the first that came to mind. Because, honestly, I can think of projector screen heroes faster, which says, I think, more about me and the books I read than it does about anything else. What are some projector screens, for example? Just for, like, contrast's sake. Oh, from books that we've read? So the one that I was thinking of right now is from Bringing Down the Duke, but we haven't read that for this podcast. So that's not helpful. Um, the guy from The Hating Game feels more like a Darcy than a Rochester. Mm-hmm. 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 That's a romantic comedy. Right. And I think, again, that's the constitutive part of it. Mm-hmm. So really any enemies to lovers is going to feel like a Darcy, I imagine. God. Like, I can't think of one that doesn't. Um, the, the main guy from Evening Star, definitely a Rochester. Yes, very much a Rochester. I think most Johanna Lindsay heroes. Rochester, 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 Rochester's down the board. Also, like, in general, like, we can't talk about Joanna Lindsay without talking about Shakes, right? Or Sheiks, because that was such a, I mean, that's her, she would, I think she would self-identify her hero archetype as a Sheik. Every, no, I don't think she would do that. Yeah, yeah. She said those were the novels that got her interested in romance, and those were her first kinds of romance novels that she wrote. And wouldn't you say that the Sheik from E.M. Hall... Is a Rochester? Yeah, absolutely no question. Yeah, no question. Yeah. I'm a little, I don't know, like that yeah. Johanna Lindsay yeah. tangent feels like, because she wrote so many medievals. I think she got interested in other historical eras. Mm-hmm. She also wrote a bunch of Viking ones. And I think she was writing the Rochester, but I don't think maybe, I think if you would have asked her, like, what hero are you writing, I think she would probably identify, like, I'm writing Sheik romances in different outfits and like how different is like that's the thing about our go back and listen to our aha shake heartbreak series where it's like this even though we act like this is like the most distant obscure form of romance it's in fact deeply influential and rooted in um, the kidnap aspect of it has gone out of style a lot of joanna Lindsay was (laughs) kidnapping yeah it was um, I'm thinking about that one that she wrote, the time travel one. The Viking or Warrior's Woman. No, the one where <gasps> Until Forever. Because there's something I think here that's like where the archetype and the arc do matter specifically for the Rochester archetype. Well, here's a question. Mm-hmm. Is a reverse... Of the archetype, any less of the archetype? What's a reverse of the archetype? So I'm thinking about, like, in the case of Until Forever, rather than the Viking being the Mm -hmm. one who kind of takes the person captive, she very much takes him captive. Like, he 
is summoned magically and is in her thrall, right? And he is the fish out of water. Or in the case of the proposition, right? The reverse, Mm -hmm. the allegedly like reverse Pygmalion, does that not make it still within the wheelhouse of like the Pygmalion? No, because they both really retain their Rochesterness, right? Like, because that's the thing that I was thinking about with even, even when you take, yeah, like the trappings of power away from these characters, they're still incredibly powerful and abusive, right? Exactly, in some ways, like there's always a threat of violence there's even if the violence is like way subdued right like there's that a reverse rochester a rochester remains exactly and but the other part of the rochester that i think is so important that isn't as present in the darcy's is the humbling Mm. right that that move from rationalization yeah to actual apology uh, and I would say that arc versus the archetype, right? Mm-hmm. That arc of Jane Eyre, the humbling of the hero, is in itself much more common. Much more common. Right. So now we're saying not only is Rochester the main archetype, Jane Eyre is the main arc. I think it might be. Like, I, I can hear my friends who are going to stand Pride and Prejudice as the arc and archetype forerunner. Yeah. We were like, no, because Darcy has to be humbled and there's that whole scene where she's like, you don't actually love me and you've just insulted me. And then he does the whole thing where he tries to fix it. I hear that. Is that different than what happens to Rochester meaningfully? (gasps) Well, Rochester's, I can't say with confidence. Do you know what we're going to have to do? You know what we're going to have to do, Morgan? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to read Pride and Prejudice, chapter by chapter, out loud to one another. That's what we're going to have to do. Because my thing, that question of like, is it inherently different, the humbling of the hero of Rochester versus that scene for Darcy? He isn't really humbled. He just comes into awareness. Is a humbling different than coming to an awareness? Mm. (gasps) Wow. Wow. I would say Rochester does come to an awareness, but it is via his humbling. It is via his humbling. So, and yeah, I don't know. And like, is, can a Darcy exist outside of a very particular Pride and Prejudice? Like not even an arc, but a mold. A mold, a rom-com mold. Yeah. A very specific set of beats. Whereas, like, Jane is more of a groove you can move to in a lot of different ways. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Jane's playing jazz. <laughs> and Darcy is sticking with the beats. All the notes that you hear. All right. Well, and I, I think it matters because, like, this question. Because where our stories come from inform our worldview, And I think going even further back and going even bigger picture than we did with the AHA Shake Heartbreak series, which now I might argue like Shake romances don't exist without Rochester, right? And Rochester did a very bad thing that I don't think the book is that critical of. Mm -hmm. Very bad things, as did Sinjin. Plural. Right? And so how... But isn't that kind of maybe central to our identity as femme people who are attracted to masculine people or people with that kind of power and movement in the world? And like, 
isn't that negotiation kind of one of the worst things we had to do <laughs> and like one of the most self-negating projects that you and I wake up every morning and undergo again and again. I'm going to think about that because I think what is really then deeply interesting about the hero humbling versus the hero awareness, if that indeed is even a distinction we want to draw, mm-hmm. is that femme people attracted to mask people who wield real power, societal, economic, whatever, otherwise. Seatbelts are designed for them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just having like <laughs> infrastructure built around them. Exactly. They're not going to die in car crashes as often. Um, is part of, is one of the constitutive pleasures of this genre. Watching that masculine power figure either come to an awareness of that power and then use it for others or be humbled and come to that awareness. Yeah. What is it? What is it? I don't know. We'll have to read Pride and Prejudice. Primary pleasures. What are they? It's the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this. And then we'll solve all of the problems of romance. Yeah. We'll be done. And then we'll solve the mystery. (laughs) That was a verbal (laughs) high five, listener. All right. Well, um, with that, loosen your woes. But never your nusses. And tune in to Jane Austen. Mwah! Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.